The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. It's good to be here. Welcome to all of you, you who are here in the room, anyone joining us online, um, especially if you're visiting with us this morning, we are very glad that you are here. And I have to thank you this morning for welcoming me. I'm usually right there in the seats beside you. Uh, my name is Ryan Jones, um, and I have the good fortune this morning to kick off our summer series on hope in action. Our vision here at the church is that we're being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And in our activities, we talk about our cycle as we gather in the name of the Father, we grow in the image of Christ, and we go in the power of the Spirit. And why go but to bring hope? Hope in action. Christian hope is not passive. Hope is a verb. And we believe God has already begun his work of transforming the world. Hope is living into the future renewal of all things by God. I'm going to start this morning. Our primary reading is from Philippians chapter 2, and this will likely be very familiar to you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please pray with me this morning. God, amidst what seems like a continuous stream of tragedy around us sometimes, we ask that your kingdom come. We look forward to the completion of your work to set things right. And in the meantime, Father, we will work for your peace and your justice. And this morning we ask for wisdom as we consider how we may go and bring hope. Amen. I can't start a sermon on hope this morning without acknowledging that there's a variety of uh, experiences people will be having in the room. Hope can be hard to conjure right now, just depending on where you are. Um, we're all caught in some kind of a cycle of terrible news, unhelpful civic discourse, fallout uh, socially from all those things, and we kind of wake up and do it again the next day. That's not pleasant, and that's something that we can spiral in and we can get stuck in. Unfortunately, my sermon this morning is not to reaffirm what our hope is, it's to talk about how we act on that hope. However, I don't think you need me to do that if you've been here early throughout the, the beginning of this year. And I have to believe this is intentional, but in January, we already had a sermon series on hope that defined that for us. Uh, one of the helpful definitions we used at that time that, that Ben provided is that hope is the belief that your future will be better than your past and that we have agency in that. And then starting in March and up until just last week, we were talking about the story of God. 
Last week, ending in the triumphant, um, God coming to be with his people at the end of the book of Revelation. And what a reminder of our hope, but to realize that God is setting things right, that he's begun that kingdom work here already, and we are the witnesses and the workers who are pointing the way, working alongside. In other words, because nobody else uses this word, I promise, we are living proleptically. I took that from Lee Camp of Lipscomb University. If you look up proleptic or you search for what that is, you'll, use, you'll hear that used or see that used in discussion about narrative. And proleptic narrative is whenever you include scenes out of order. So you start with a scene, you jump to the future, you jump back to the past. This is actually pretty common on TV today, I feel like. You get future snapshots, uh, past snapshots. Whenever Lee Camp talks about this, he is talking about not narrative and not fiction, proleptic story. He's talking about real and tangible living the future right now. We have hope because we've seen the end of the story and we know that that work has begun now. We're in the future. The future's here. He uses the humorous example of perhaps all, all of us have been at this uh, point at some time. You're standing in the doorway to the garage. You need to get out the door. Not everybody's ready and you might say, I'm in the car. You're not in the car, but you're speaking proleptically because you're trying to motivate action now based on the future. We are living proleptically. This morning, our theme is hope and action, and we're going to spend time looking at the pattern of Jesus' behavior pretty broadly and looking for what I'm calling an ethic to point us toward and guide us through living out our hope today. And as I introduce my thoughts, I want to use an image um, that I got from Richard Rohr, who's a, a Franciscan friar. I just love the image that he uses. Most of us understandably start our journey assuming that God is up there and our job is to transcend this world to find him. We spend so much time trying to get up there, we miss that God's big leap in Jesus was to come down here. So much of our worship and religious effort is the spiritual equivalent of trying to go up what has become the down escalator. I find that a convicting image, and I really like a couple of things about that. And one is that it makes so clear that there's no amount of striving that we can do to it. I mean, who hasn't tried to climb the down elevator escalator at some point, right? Until you discovered that like the sharpest material known to man is the front edge corner of one of those things, um, for who knows why, just to make them dangerous. Um, but, but there's no amount of striving that we're going to do to go up a spiritual, a godly down escalator. This is a one-way trip. We don't have to earn our way up there. He's coming down to us. It is the pattern of descending. That's not exactly the language the Philippians uses, but I think we can see that in the language here. Being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. Um, not, 
I like to think of the metaphor of pouring out. He emptied himself of that equality with God, did not see that as something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, God is a descending God. And I'll posit this morning or propose that we are a descending religion, not a striving one. In fact, whenever I look at Scripture, I think that the act of striving is a posture of sin and death. And I'll explain myself a little bit here. Go back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve. Uh, That Scripture around Adam and Eve was even mentioned this morning during our class. What was the original sin? We talk about the disobedience of that a lot and how that created a lack of trust and a separation from God. But there was a very specific temptation that was dangled in front of Eve in the conversation with the serpent. You will be like God. There was something they could do, something they could strive for to be like God. And of course, you have really obvious examples in Scripture of things like the Tower of Babel. We're going to reach the heavens and make a name for ourselves. But perhaps more applicable in the biblical narrative is what we see from the prophets. You can pick anyone you'd like, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, come to mind for me, that speak to the nation of Israel to indicate that they are striving. They are doing these acts, the traditions that they have been given to achieve holiness and righteousness and right standing with God, but it's the equivalent of going through the motions. In fact, Isaiah 58 um, says, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? And with the voice of God, Isaiah responds, the kind of fasting I have chosen is to loose the chains of injustice. They've forgotten the substance of these holy acts, these traditions that they'd been handed. Striving is not the posture. In fact, if they were comfortable that God was a descending God, perhaps they could be sure of their hope and turn and focus on the substance of that hope here in the world. So what are we to do with this if we're to imitate Christ? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. And I would argue this morning, not that anyone's arguing with me at the moment, in the mindset of Jesus, we find what I'd like to call an ethic of descending. An ethic being a moral principle or a ground rule that we can return to for our daily decisions and as our guide for our our behavior and our choices. So as we dig in this morning, I want to talk about an ethic of descending, look at specific behaviors from Jesus, and talk a little bit about applying those in the world around us, behaviors of hope. And I want to be clear before I do that, uh, a couple of caveats. One caveat Whenever I talk about this term descending, it's by comparison to the act of Jesus in humbling himself. It's by comparison to that metaphor of the escalator. It is not a direct reference to social hierarchy of some kind, financial hierarchy. Although, turning and examining that hierarchy and learning more about that is an application of this, is, I would believe, very important, and we'll talk a little bit about that. This is broader. 
This is broader in our lives. And the corollary of that caveat is that I'm talking about descending, not condescending, which can be our role if we believe that in any situation I am right, I have the answer, and in fact, the answer is to be more like me. We can point to Jesus in the work. We're descending, not condescending. Now with that, I wanna start with an illustration. So this poor guy caught in a prison of brambles is Uncle Andrew. One of the things that I love in this phase of parenting for me, and what I always hear you know, from older parents is enjoy it while it lasts, things change really quickly, soak it all in. My soaking moments right now are that my kids are old enough to sit and read a novel with. And so Micah and I do this every night. It's one of our favorite things that we enjoy doing together. And we've recently tackled the Chronicles of Narnia. And so after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we went back to what is chronologically in the story, the very beginning. It's a a book called The Magician's Nephew. Now, Uncle Andrew is the nominal magician in the story. And we find our cast of characters uh, at a, a point in this narrative witnessing the creation of Narnia a parallel creation story. It starts with darkness, a low rumble, the appearance of light and color. And of course, if you know anything about the the Chronicles of Narnia, you end up in the end with talking animals and creatures of all kinds that are, of course, fantastical and uh, not the equivalent of our biblical creation story. However, two characters in this story, very important. We see their posture differently at the beginning and we see them react very differently in the end. Uncle Andrew is the man who invented or discovered the magic to travel outside of our world, which is an awesome accomplishment, you might say. His desire and his entire life's work is his magic and trying to achieve this power, and he's very proud of the fact that nobody else has ever done this. In fact, he tests his theories by sending creatures and other people out of the world, kind of disregarding what might happen to them or how they'll ever get back. He has a nephew named Diggory. Diggory is the main protagonist of the story. Now Diggory is witnessing this creation of Narnia because he saw what his uncle was doing, he discovered this, and thought, how are these people gonna get back? He sees one of his friends from down the street get shipped off to wherever, who knows? And he thinks, Uncle Andrew's not going to do anything about this. I better go too. So he's one of the only characters who's there by choice because of a posture of looking out for someone else. Now, when they witness this event, what it looks like to someone like Uncle Andrew, who is founded in our real world very tangibly, who's proud of their own power and seeks that, is he sees the lion Aslan, the, the Jesus figure in these stories. He sees a roaring lion, and he sees him gathering with other wild animals and a lot of noise and commotion, and he is terrified of what's going on. And in fact, he is in this little prison of brambles because of all kinds of a comedy of errors where the animals can't figure out if he's a person or some kind of weird moving plant or a wild creature, and he's causing all kinds of problems, and so they they contain him, and he's fearing for his life. Diggory, on the other hand, witnesses the same thing, a roaring lion, but he understands that the lion is speaking and in fact gathering all of the creatures together and giving them instructions and their mandate for how they are to go out into the world. 
And he figures this out because of his posture of curiosity, his awe at the situation, and because one thing that I haven't told you is that his mother, Uncle Andrew's sister, is back at their home, chronically ill, very near death. And while Uncle Andrew is fearing for his life, we see Diggory realizing that if Aslan has the power to create and to bring life and to set things in order, then perhaps he has the ability to help him and to help his mother with their issue. Now, as he builds up the courage because of his hope to approach Aslan, we hear this quote from Uncle Andrew. What a selfish little boy that Diggory is, and the others are just as bad. If they want to throw away their own lives, that's their business. But what about me? They don't seem to think about that. No one thinks of me. The irony being that they're all there because of him, and he certainly didn't care about them whenever he was shipping them off for his magical experimentation. So you can see here how these two characters come in with a different posture, one a posture of striving, another with a posture of hope, and how that plays out in the story. Maybe that's a productive image, maybe it's not. I thought that was kind of fun. When I saw that, uh, that quote about no one thinks of me, in fact, it, it even hit home a little bit to some extent. Am I missing the grand picture and the miraculous work that's going on around me whenever I'm thinking about my own life and how it should be better or how hard it is? So let's define then, coming back to our ethic of descending. And here's how I define it, and you can see some of this in the illustration I just provided. Is a conscious decision in moments big and small to consider the other. This is the behavior that I see in Jesus that I think that we can duplicate. And I wanna talk this morning about a few of those behaviors and just talk about some examples. Starting with empathy. We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness. In fact, Hebrews goes on to say he was tempted in every way just like us. Whenever we say that Jesus descended and he emptied himself, he didn't just descend from godhood, equality to personhood. He descended, I would say it as all the way, <laughs> to be tempted in every way, to be touched by unclean people, to hang out with tax collectors and sinners, he descended all the way. And how can we experience and turn to know, or how can we turn and know the experience of those unlike us? Jesus did it by becoming us and participating with us. That's certainly a behavior that we can duplicate. The word empathy is pretty appropriate here, I think. At the very least, we can listen to what other people have to say from their own perspective. It's really easy for us to go into any given situation feeling like we understand the world and how it works, but how many of us and even our close personal relationships have really been galled by something and really known that there was ill intent involved only to find out that we just saw things different, that somebody just overlooked something, didn't think of something, and whenever we understood that, there's no ill intent involved. In fact, that's probably the case most of the time. Very applicable socially, very applicable in our personal experience. Inclusion 
Come follow me. I don't include these words because of the, necessarily the profoundness of those three words, but because of who he's talking to. Who's Jesus traveling with in, throughout the Gospels? He's got a tax collector who everyone hates. He's got several fishermen. He's got a zealot who I've heard in Bible classes talked about like a terrorist. I don't know how directly equivalent that is. But he's not running with the kind of people who the spiritual elites would have thought of as productive or holy at the time. But he's including them, and that in itself is a pretty radical act and an expression of how different the message was he was bringing than what the current practice was by spiritual leaders at the time. Example from my life, uh, there's a man that I worked with, he's retired now, who looking back, I consider a mentor. At the time, we were teammates. He was a lead member, I was a more junior member, and he made it a habit, whether it was relevant to the projects I was working on or not, is he'd be running off to a meeting and say, hey, why don't you come with me? This would be good for you to learn. Why don't you come with me? It'd be good for you to meet this person. This would be interesting for you. Just, just come on along with me. Why don't you give the presentation that we're giving? That'd be a good experience, right? And it took until he was already retired for me to realize that what I learned and the people that I met and the places I went jump-started my career and transformed it in ways that I don't even know I can fully appreciate. It's so ironic that I didn't realize that at the time. But he didn't have to do that. And who is in your life who you can turn to and include who you, you don't have to, and maybe it wouldn't even make sense for you to? How does this look in your life? And Ben gave a sermon in January, and he talked about pathways and agency. Uh, part of our social responsibility to one another that provides hope. Who can we provide a pathway to? Maybe this is a plug for connections. I'd argue that we can provide pathways for each other, including each other, building community. Jesus built a pretty interesting community himself. An ethic of descending in healing. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there's no needy, there were no needy persons among them. I used the word healing, and then I talked more about helping. You can substitute the word helping here. Sometimes what a person needs in this world is exactly what we are able to provide, whether that's from a unique talent we have, from resources we have. Sometimes we are able to stop our normal, busy, striving lives and provide exactly what is needed. Not all the time, but sometimes. I love the story in Mark chapter 5 of Jesus and Jairus' daughter. And the reason that I love it so much is because it, it feels like real life. Like the action doesn't stop. So Jesus is across the lake. He's just driven a legion of demons into the pigs. The pigs run off. He gets run out of town because he killed all their pigs. He crosses the lake, gets off the boat, and immediately is met by a leader named Jairus who says, my daughter is sick. Can you come help her? She's at my house. So I'm afraid that she's going to die. On the way, the crowd presses in. Jesus is having trouble navigating the situation. Someone touches him, the bleeding woman, who uh, he feels power go out from him. He turns and addresses her, uh, a radical act somewhat in itself. And then once that's finally done, and once he's able to get through the crowd, he can finally move on to, you know, the task at hand of saving Jairus' daughter. 
that feels real to me, like the way that a day goes. Like I'm redirected about five times before I get to the thing that I was trying to go to. So for example of Christian hope and its opportunity for healing, I'm going to go big. I said in my definition of the ethic, right, in moments big and small, in the year 165, I love this story, there was a an epidemic in the Greco-Roman world. We think that it was smallpox, uh, one of the early epidemics of smallpox, but it was extremely deadly. And people were just discovering that this kind of disease was contagious. And so at the first sign that someone was sick, they were booted into the street, locked the doors, you're out with the bodies that are piled up there at the first sign of being sick. And it was a bishop in Alexandria named Dionysius who realized a lot of these people are dying because they're just not strong enough to feed themselves and to get their own water to drink. And so he rallied his Christian community and went and fed people, just took basic care of people in the streets. And their success at reducing the mortality rate during this epidemic was so dramatic that it was attributed to miraculous healing. Look at the Christians who can go do miraculous healing because they just stopped to feed people who had been shoved out into the street. And it was so dramatic that the, the Roman pagan leaders at the time ordered their own priests to do the same thing because they thought if the Christians can do it, we ought to be able to do it. But there was a key difference between those two groups of people. And one was that the hope of afterlife in the Roman pagan religion, if you believed in it at all, was very uncomfortable, not something that you looked forward to, even a little. The Christians, on the other hand, believed in renewed life, in new creation, in life after. They didn't have the same fears, and so they were very successful in that moment. That's a big scale. All of these behaviors apply at the big scale and the little scale. Justice. The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. There was a reason that Jesus was targeted and that ultimately he was executed. One was because he claimed authority, authority directly from God. And the other one was because he said stuff like this. Your rules are made for the benefit of man, not man for your rules. And so I'm just gonna disregard those. Sometimes whenever what we have is not exactly what is needed, we are called to speak up and to advocate for especially those who are marginalized or oppressed, opposing authorities. That's the reality of it. We definitely see Jesus join the prophetic resistance whenever he takes his mandate from the book of the scroll, I guess, of Isaiah in Luke chapter four, where he reads a passage talking about bringing good news to the poor, restoring sight to the blind, setting the oppressed free, and says this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He takes on the same posture of the prophets who are indicting Israel for striving for holiness, but missing the point. I've been able, through our benevolence ministry over the last, it's hard to say this, like decade or so, um, to join a community of faith and finance program facilitators around the country. Um, so we keep up on Facebook and messaging and things like that. And one of the conversations that has been very consistent over those 10 years, because people who are coming to churches for financial help um, are often in this problem, is the predatory nature of payday lending institutions. It's a problem. 
Somebody is having a hard time catching up on their rent. Their lights are going to get shut off. They just need that extra little bit. And then they get stuck in a cycle of exorbitant interest rates that is not intended to ever be paid back. It's intended to start a slow trickle of funding on the back of somebody who is in a desperate situation. And so I've seen churches get involved in public advocacy for rules and regulations around payday lending, and successfully in many states. And I've also seen churches directly get ahead of the game by partnering with banks to provide an alternative to people who are in that situation. Sometimes whenever what we have is not what is needed, we're called to speak up and advocate. And the point of all of it, reconciliation, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This was a passage we used in the sermon just last week. The triumphant end to God's story is that God is now with his people. The earth, heavens, they come together. There's a new heaven and a new earth, Jerusalem, and God is with his people, the ultimate reconciliation. Colossians 1 says Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, John 17, he prays that we will be one as he and the Father is one. God sees brokenness and separation. He pours himself into it, and the two become one. Importantly, when the two become one, it does not look like heaven before, and it does not look like earth after. It is a new heaven and a new earth, something completely different. It's, it would be hard for me to believe that any of us are not witness to broken relationships in our world right now in a very divisive circumstance. And we are called in our own right to be bringers of reconciliation. This is something that our peacemakers ministry actually practices. The ethic of descending, of humbling ourselves, emptying ourselves enough that we can provide empathy, include someone else, and experience healing, all leading up to the ultimate reconciliation. I'm not saying throw yourself into situations where people are mistreating you or anything like that, but reconciliation is the goal, and every act of that is the kingdom now, proleptic hope. So an ethic of descending is a conscious decision in moments big and small to consider the other. These are behaviors of hope. They reveal the kingdom the downward escalator that came in Jesus means our hope is secure. And in that security, we don't have to strive for equality with God. We don't have to strive for heaven. We can be certain of our hope and turn and pour into others for the purpose of reconciliation. I want to acknowledge that you in this circumstance at this time may be the one who's needing help, who may need advocacy. You are where you are. And I would like to remind you that when Jesus was raised, he was raised with the scars of sin and death. Just as John read this morning, the hole was still in his side, but he was raised and he was transfigured. So whatever scars sin and death has left on you or is leaving on you now, you can still be part of the kingdom and what you can do where you are is enough. Every act of hope is a proleptic bringing of the kingdom here and now. So I'm gonna close again with scripture. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
in your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, the mindset of an ethic of descending, humbling, pouring out.